Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Seniors Straight Talk. They can also be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel, so please remember to like, click, and share the episodes. You can find two of my courses on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners who are in SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, Resilience Toolbox Secrets features empathy, a word I've trademarked, teaching self-care, self-kindness, and self-compassion strategies that will help you recharge, reset, and recommit. Family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. And look out for an announcement for my upcoming five-day challenge entitled Caregiver Bounce Back from Burnout. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. The book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes and assisted living residences. And I'm very proud that Dr. Bill Thomas wrote the foreword for the book. So I hope you'll purchase Mm -hmm. a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I'm hoping to have an audio version of the book in the near future. I appreciate your support and hope you'll help spread the word on this all important topic. Seniors Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and Pass It On Network continues bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm also glad to welcome Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California as a sponsor. Olive Community Services is dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And I'm very grateful to Olive President Rubina Chaudhry and the entire team at Olive for their continued support. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. But now for today's guest, I'm honored that Mark Parkinson has agreed to share his time with me on Senior Straight Talk. Mark Parkinson is the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living, which represents more than 14,000 nursing homes and assisted living residences throughout the United States. The two organizations are the largest associations for long-term care, and they now boast record membership. Prior to serving as the 45th governor of Kansas, 
He owned and operated long-term care facilities in both Kansas and Missouri, bringing to his position an understanding of the landscape from an insider's perspective. Under Mark Parkinson's leadership, the American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living are responsible for delivering policy solutions to improve care in our nation's nursing homes and assisted living residences to both Capitol Hill and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And in his stunning role at the helm of these organizations, Mark Parkinson has been named one of the country's top 100 lobbyists for eight consecutive years by The Hill, a Capitol Hill newspaper, and has been named one of the most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare in 2015 and in 2020. And in 2019, the Washington Post's top workplace survey named Mark Parkinson a top CEO in the small employer agency category. And in 2013, he was named top CEO by CEO update. So I'm also so thrilled to say that I was mentioned along alongside Mark Parkinson in an article entitled, entitled Long-Term Care Change is Good, which was published in McKnight's Long-Term Care News back in January, 2021. So welcome, Mark. I'm so glad you can be here with me today. Phyllis, thank you. What a super kind introduction. I'm nowhere near as good as those accolades, but I'm, 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 I appreciate them. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to be on here today. I know you've got a lot of caregivers in your audience, which I greatly appreciate and hope that I can provide some meaningful info to that. Oh, I'm sure you can. So I'd love for you to start out by telling the listeners about the organizations, what it's about, who it represents, and um, how you came to partner with Leading Age for an initiative called the Senior Care for Seniors Act to improve care in our nation's nursing homes. Sure, sure. So there are trade associations for everything. No matter what you are, there's probably a trade association for you. There are 6,000 of them. In fact, there is a there is a trade association for trade associations. <laughs> I, I am not kidding you. Uh, and so you would expect that there would be a trade association for long-term care, and there are actually a few of them. Um, we represent 10,500 of the roughly 15,000 nursing homes. We represent another 4,000 assisted living facilities. We're in D.C. There's 90 of us here in D.C., we have a miniature version of us in every state capital. So there's a small healthcare association affiliate, sometimes not so small. The California affiliate has 40 employees, but uh, in Delaware, they have one. So it, it ranges all across the country in terms of size. Uh, and our job is to represent the people that own and operate facilities, but really more important to represent the people that work in them and that live in them. Um, we are a mission-driven organization, and that's the central part of our entire philosophy. And our mission is to improve lives by delivering solutions for quality care. We believe that we don't want to just be like every other trade association that just goes up to the Capitol Hill and says no to everything or is just lobbying for money. We do say no to some things and we do lobby for money, but we mainly provide solutions that we hope will lead to better quality. And that really leads into your question about our relationship with um, leading age in terms of the reform plan. Um, the pandemic has been a nightmare. Um, your listeners, I'm sure, each have their own individual experiences. Collectively, it's been horrific. Uh, we've had over 150,000 people die in nursing homes, tens of thousands 
that have died in assisted living facilities. And, you know, it's been a horrible tragedy. We think it would be a mistake and it would just be horrendous to ignore that this and, and the lessons that we can learn from this horrible experience. So we, we took a long look into the mirror and said, you know, we don't really feel like we're responsible for this, for this pandemic, but we think we've learned some things that will allow us to get better if we can get them implemented. Um, some best practices, some staffing situations, and some, some things relating to survey, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so we put all of that into a reform plan. Uh, I think it may be the first time that an association's ever gone up to the Hill and said, we want you to impose some things on us, but that's what we've done. And after we put it together, I called Katie Sloan, who's the head of Leading Age, the CEO over there. And I said, Katie, I want you to know that we've got this plan. I don't want you to be surprised by it and want to kind of review it with you. And I reviewed it with her and she said, this is great. Mm -hmm. uh, and next thing you know, we were presenting it. Uh, she was presenting it to her board and her board and our board both endorsed it. And so I'm happy to say that both organizations are now um, pushing the Care for Our Seniors Act, which we think would you know, materially improve care in nursing homes if Congress would adopt it. So it's interesting because Katie Smith Sloan was, when I converted the radio show Voices for Elder Care Advocacy to a podcast, Senior Straight Talk, Katie Smith Sloan was my first guest. So oh, great. This, this is really fitting. So in terms of staffing requirements, I read through the, uh, the act and I'm glad to see that there is an initiative to increase the registered nurse staffing in nursing homes. <laughs> Presently, it's uh, um, eight hours a day, seven days a week. I'm right. glad to see that it has moved to uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What about other staffing requirements? Well, there's a, there's a couple, there's really three big issues right now. And on two of them, we say, hey, this makes sense uh, in the act. The first is what you just referred to, which is that we think that more registered nurse hours in a building makes a difference. The data demonstrates that. So if we could get to a situation where nursing homes didn't have eight hours, you know, mainly just during the day shift, if they had a RN for 24 hours, we think that's the first thing that would improve care. Secondly is that infection control preventionists matter. Mm -hmm. Having somebody whose job is to figure out what can we do better to prevent infections and to keep infections from spreading, that has real value. Um, you know, we've learned during the pandemic that, that buildings that had positions like that, they still got COVID. I mean, frankly, everybody got COVID, but they were able to manage it better. Um, and so we're, we're also asking that that be mandated upon facilities. The, the area that we're not going to is the, the minimum staffing requirement uh, standard for the whole country. Um, there are a number of people, and I understand where they're coming from, that are saying that every nursing home should have X amount of staff regardless of the state they're in. There's really two problems with that. The first is that it's really hard to find staff anywhere right now. And so you, it's, and it's not just true in long-term care, it's true in every profession. And so you've got to be really careful about mandating something that's impossible to comply with. The second problem is that there are states in the country where the Medicaid rate is so bad um, that it's just not possible to add staff financially. You know, states like Texas and Illinois have horrendously low Medicaid rates, and there are others like that. Um, and so until that situation's fixed, minimum staffing just won't work. But, you know, on, on the RN and the infection control, our view is that those two things would really make a difference, and that's what we're pushing. 
uh, I certainly have experienced <clears throat> facilities with less than adequate staffing, not, right. not only in, well, I'm in the uh, metropolitan area. My licensure is in New York. So I've basically worked in New York facilities, but certainly I know about facilities in this, in this area. And, um, I can't speak to the Medicaid rate, but I can say, and the, the documentation and the research is certainly there about the impact on less than adequate staffing on outcomes and patient care. I mean, that's more than obvious. And as somebody who's worked in nursing homes and who actually is now covering in nursing homes from time to time as a speech and language pathologist, I see it every single day. So let's yeah. hope that, that, that we can move in, in that direction. Um, I know that the organization represents both for-profit and not-for-profit providers. I have worked in facilities that have gone from not-for-profit to for-profit. I've worked in many buildings where it was, I encountered them when they were just for-profit. Um, and then I've worked in buildings that were individually owned for-profit and then were sold off to larger for-profit organizations. What, change, what differences do you see in, in how those, those organizations function, or do you see change, differences? True. Well, just so, so people can understand the situation, about 75% of nursing homes are for-profit. About 25% are not-for-profit. It's kind of interesting because that's the reverse in the, in the hospital world. In the hospital world, about 75% are not-for-profit, about 25% are for-profit. Um, the, the for-profits are very much a ma and pa business. Um, most of them are independent owners, people like my wife and I that have you know, four or five buildings, not people that have large numbers of buildings. The not-for-profits also tend to be relatively small organizations. There are a few exceptions like the Good Samaritan Society and now ProMedica and others, but the whole sector, whether it's nursing homes or assisted living, tends to be a pretty decentralized thing with the small ownership groups. Um, as you indicated, we represent both. So about 73% of our membership is for-profit, about 27% is not-for-profit. Um, and you know, when I got into this work 30 years ago, I think there was a pretty significant difference between for-profit and not-for-profit. Um, the not-for-profits, I think, were way ahead on quality outcomes and quality measures and way ahead on being mission-driven. You know, I talked about at the very beginning how we're a mission-driven organization, and you tended to see that way more in the not-for-profits than you did in the for-profits. Yeah, I agree. I've seen that myself. Yeah. Now, I think there's been, though, a change in the last 30 years, and that's because payment models have changed in most states, not all. But in most states and at the federal level, so that if you don't get good outcomes for your residents, you're going to have a hard time being successful, whether you're a for-profit or a not-for-profit. So I think that the care, if you look at the statistics, the care gap, the gap between you know, on the various quality measures, I think has narrowed. Uh, and you have, you know, you have many not for many for-profits, excuse me, that have actually gotten quite good at providing quality care, they're incentivized to do it now. Uh, and so I don't think you can just say anymore that if it's a for-profit, it's probably bad. And if it's a not-for-profit, it's probably good. I, I think there are great in both categories and frankly, there's bad in both categories. Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, consumers really have to investigate it on a building by building basis. It's even possible 
to have a bad building in a really good organization. And it's also possible to have a really good building in a bad organization. I agree. I've seen it. I've seen it always. And when I'm advising family members, I tell them this, that you really can't paint anything with a broad brush. I also tell them, don't judge by appearances. Uh, We both know that many uh, for-profit providers, especially there's especially where the short-term rehabilitation area is concerned. They try and put more money into that to attract Medicare dollars. Uh, That doesn't mean anything. I have seen buildings that have not had those updates that provide excellent care. And like you said, so it doesn't, you can't look at the overall organization. You really do have to look at that individual building. The best thing is to visit, to find out, uh, you know, ask the questions, find out who's in charge. Visiting, of course, wasn't possible during COVID, but there are other things that you can do to uh, to look into that. Yeah. One of the most inspiring things that's happened to me in my 10 plus years at Oc is I, vi- I visited a building in Colorado called the Rowan Home, and it was like the oldest, smallest nursing home I think I've ever seen. And you know, I went into this thing and I'm, I mean, I'm talking really, really small. The, the rooms are like shared rooms that are like 300 square feet. It's just a stereotype of what you'd think of, man, this thing needs to be torn down and a new building needs to be built here. Well, you go in and they had turned it into an Eden alternative home. Oh. So, there's, so there's dogs and cats everywhere and birds and ivy and plants. And they had developed this incredible person-centered care philosophy that was, you could just feel it in the building. 50-person building, five-star rated. It had a waiting list for residents, and it had a waiting list for staff. That's a (laughs) beautiful story. And so it's just an example of, you know, it's really, you can't judge a book by its cover in this work. And you're right, there's some Taj Mahal buildings out there that really aren't that great in in the care. So you've just got to study it. And I don't know how, how, how you advise people, but I think that one of the best things for folks to do when they're is obviously a tour of the building and everybody does that. But I think you need to talk to residents and family members, kind of pull yourself away from the marketing person. Right. And, and talk to the and just say, what's it really like to be here? Because they know. Right. You know. And they will tell you. They will. Yeah. They will tell you. Uh, um, so I love that story about this small building that embraced the Eden Alternative and person-centered care. I'm, obviously, we all know how <laughs> important that is. And, um, but what about the, the providers or how do you think they will respond to some of these changes? I, I see some of them as having this mindset, almost like a blueprint of how they go about running their buildings. How do you think we can inspire them to embrace these changes or implement these changes? Some of them really, I, I've, I've talked to to administrators, I've talked to COOs, I've talked to owners. Some of them, it's not really a great financial cost. To my my thinking is, it's more of a mindset issue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you know we've always had folks in the in the industry, the sector, whatever you want to call it, that were in it for the right reasons. They were in it. They're in it to provide great care and and really you know hopefully create great jobs and all of that. And so they've been easy to persuade. And then like any sector, there's always people that are involved in it for not the right reasons. They're they're just trying to make money and they don't care that much. What's happening is that it's it's becoming harder and harder for the people in the second category to succeed because more and more payment models are being based on outcomes. More and more, there's more information 
for people to have. You know, if people will do their homework and really figure out what a building is all about, there's an awful lot of information on the internet now where people can 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 do that. So I, I think that the number of people in the second category are dwindling. Unfortunately, you know, when they, they end up making the headlines because when really bad things happen, they're newsworthy. So I think the public thinks that there's a very high percentage of people that are in the second category. I really don't think that there is. Um, I think over time, those people will just not succeed. Um, but, but, you know, we'll, we'll tell. The, the quality indicators, despite the horrible pandemic, the quality indicators have generally been moving in the right direction. Um, I mean, you know, because you've been in buildings as long as I have, things have changed a lot in these buildings. Um, the, the, the nursing home of 30 years ago is very different than what it is now. And, and by and large, it's better. It doesn't get better all the time, but it's, we're heading in the right direction. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And um, before we go to break, because we, you know, I, I do want us to, uh, to have a short break before we come back and, and continue the conversation. But, but um, I think that not only with the different payment models that have to do more with outcomes, but because of things that are in the news, because of COVID, many nursing homes have taken a huge financial hit. People don't mm-hmm. want to go to nursing homes. I've seen nursing homes that have closed entire units, entire floors, certainly right. uh, with empty beds. And with the advent of the uh, money follows the person payment model where people can remain in their homes and use that same money to receive care in the community, they will, I, I'm thinking that that may inspire people to make changes if they want their business to continue to remain solvent. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. There, I think there's a number of, I, I completely agree. We, we need to create and amplify the incentives for people to get better. You know, one of the things that we've tried to get CMS to do, and they're just not going to do it. Um, if the five-star survey score, the five-star score wasn't mainly based on survey, but if instead it was mainly based upon your outcomes, mainly based upon, you know, how you did with the outcomes of your residents. That's what providers would focus on. And I think outcomes would get better. So there, there are ways that we can incentivize people to, to specific behaviors and that will work. And, you know, we just, we just need to continue our efforts doing that. Uh, that's great. So on that note, we're going to take a short break on Senior Straight right. Talk, and then I'll return with this great conversation with Mark Parkinson. Be back in a few. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. 
To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit allofcs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with a very exciting conversation with Mark Parkinson. And um, we left off talking about uh, surveys and outcomes and how facilities can Im- improve their performance and how uh, that will impact people wanting to go to nursing homes. Because I think there will always be a need for nursing homes, even if people do decide to stay in their home for care for maybe for their entire lives, but there will always be a time when people will have to move into nursing homes, or there will be that segment of the population that will have to move into a nursing home and not be able to get care in their home or with their families. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I, in fact, I'll tell you a story. When, when my wife and I started our, our work, we, our very first building was an assisted living facility. And we decided that we, we wanted to build an assisted living facility that was so nice that people would want to leave their homes and live in this building. Now, I look back on that now, and that was so naive and frankly embarrassing and represented a lack of character almost, because what, what we didn't understand about people, and it makes complete sense, is that no one wants to leave their home. I mean, it doesn't matter how nice a facility is. You, you don't want to leave it. You don't want to leave your home. There's so many memories and experiences there that to think that some people would say, oh, this is great. You know, we're doing great here at home, but let's go live in Mark and Stacy's assisted living building. <laughs> but, but, what we, but what we also learned is that there are a large number of very old and very frail people out there. And as you know, from all of the demographics, this is only going to increase as years go on. But even now, as we sit here, there are millions of people that are over 80, 85 years old that are just trying to make it through the day. You know, they're in pain. They've had incredible losses in their lives, both physically and emotionally, and they're outliving their their friends and their relatives. And a a pretty high percentage of them just aren't going to be able to take care of themselves at home. And so people don't move into nursing homes because they want to. They move into them because they have to. Correct. And, and unfortunately, that's not going to change. Now, we'll get better. You know, there'll be better technology and better medicine, and we'll be able to keep people home for longer periods of time. But there just gets to be a point with some people where their frailty level is so high that it's just not safe anymore for them to be at home. You know, we used to take care of people that were um, in some of our private pay assisted living that were pretty darn wealthy people. And, you know, they had the financial means to stay at home and have home health around the clock, have home health care workers come in around the clock. Well, it turns out that's not so great either. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there's, there's an undepend. what happens if somebody doesn't show up, you know, there's right. massive turnover and everything. So this whole idea that we're just going to keep people at home, 
I, I don't think so. I'm all for people staying at home as long as they can, but there are still going to be millions of people that need to live in assisted so, living and skilled nursing. So I'm glad to hear you say that because <clears throat> I've been actually saying that for years when this all started about people, you know, remaining at home for longer periods of time, because there's a whole other issue about oversight of home care agencies and the people mm -hmm. who work for them. But that's not the purpose of this conversation. But that has always been uh, an issue of concern to me. Oh, it's yeah. And I mean, thank you for making that an issue, because it's it seems there's an enormous disparity in the regulation of skilled nursing and home health. And I don't want to knock home health. Again, it's really important. And there are, sometimes it's done really, really well. But it is not the panacea that the politicians think it is. Like, oh, yeah. we'll just keep everybody at home. Yeah, no, well, I agree. 500%. I'm so <laughs> glad that you agree on that. It just is not. And I know so many circumstances that have not been great uh, for a variety of reasons, not pointing to any particular, like you say, home health care agency. But I think there needs to be greater oversight, greater regulation, or greater, greater something. Um, Training, whatever, but uh, that's a that's a whole other. Topic. Well, and then and then the other thing is, and this has to be a good facility. This is not true in all facilities, but in good facilities, there's socialization that occurs. You know, there's people that are getting together and spending time with other people, etc. Some some folks at home just don't have that. <clears throat> and, Correct. And that's, that can, yeah. Correct. Not to interrupt you, but then there are the situations where people move from their homes because they don't have the socialization and they move into a nursing home surrounded by people and they're still isolated and don't have socialization. Yeah. But that goes to a whole other conversation about the quality environment that's created. Um, right. I want you to go back to something in terms of the workforce because <laughs> retaining a, a workforce has been a, a longstanding issue and it's become even more of an issue since COVID, I think. But beyond increasing salaries, which everybody talks about and you know, healthcare workers need to earn a living wage. I personally believe that different leadership models and providing opportunities for growth, advancement, or a greater voice in the process would have a positive impact on attracting and retaining a healthcare workforce. So what are your thoughts on that? And is there any thoughts about that in terms of the organization or in terms of any policy initiatives? You're 100% right. And the, the data indicates that, that wages are important to employee satisfaction and engagement, but there are other things that are also very important. A, a feeling that the mission that you're involved in is important. A feeling like your opinion matters at, at work is important. Having friends at work. Um, so the, the organizations in any sector, whether it's long-term care or commercial airlines or whatever, that are involved in employee engagement and satisfaction programs, they do really, really well. And organizations that don't care about those things just don't. Um, at ACA, we talk about how we're driven by a mission, but we're also driven by data. Um, those are our two things that we preach over and over and over to ourselves. We believe that the most important piece of data for any organization is employee engagement and satisfaction, because if your employees are engaged and satisfied, you can achieve your other outcomes. So there are outstanding long-term care organizations that are deeply committed to employee engagement and satisfaction. And it shows up not just in their satisfaction scores, but it also shows up in their retention numbers. Right. The retention numbers are much better. And then it shows up in their bottom line. 
Right. Because when you when you have all this turnover, it's expensive, and sometimes you can't fill positions, and you end up having to hire outside agency, which is not only expensive, it's usually, it, it can often not be as good because you don't have consistent assignment, the outside agency nurses don't know, the, the staff, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the core of any organization, including long-term care, is employee engagement and satisfaction. And that's what we were completely focused on in our operation when we had our buildings. It's what we're focused on at ACA NCAL within our organization right now. And you made the reference to the, to the Washington Post um, award. That's because for in organizations under 100 employees, we had the highest employee engagement and satisfaction in the city. And I just think it's the key to everything. Uh, I agree. I tell a story uh, in my book, but I've told the story to many people throughout the years. Uh, there was an owner that I worked for many, many, many years ago. He owned one building at that time. Now he and his partner own many buildings, but that's another matter. And he used to do rounds in this building four times a week with the administrator. Mm -hmm. And he knew the staff. He'd ask them how they were, how their parent was doing, their son's graduation, their vacation, their how they were feeling, if they had been ill. He knew the residents, their names. Um, of course, he had great, uh, great loyalty, great staff retention. The, the, um, the um, what's the word I'm going, the atmosphere in the building was, sure. was certainly great. It was palpable. You could feel it. Yeah, that's great. No, and, and you see that you see that in every in every sector. Yeah. So it's e it's easy to do when you have just a few buildings. It gets harder when you have more. But there are organizations that are large that have done it. Well, um, because I believe it starts at the top. So if that's your philosophy and you impart that to your administrators, who right. in turn are the leaders of the, that building, then that will that should you know, right. impact that, that particular organ, that particular building, I should say. So then I had another question uh, because um, COVID obviously has highlighted the improved clinical focus and expertise. And the state of California, I believe, is proposing leg legislation that's requiring nursing home medical directors to be certified as geriatricians. So I was wondering if ACA has a stance on ensuring that, that they're more engaged and that they're they're certified in that way. I, I didn't know that. So requiring the medical directors of the nursing homes to be certified geriatricians. I, I believe you. <clears throat> yeah, I, I didn't know about that proposal. I, I mean, at first glance, it makes a lot of sense uh, if it's possible. I just, I just don't know, you know how many buildings don't have that and whether the, the geriatricians are available. But obviously, you know, focus training, et cetera, is uh, helpful. And so, you know, my, my initial reaction is pretty favorable. <laughs> That's good. So uh, you mentioned this Eden alternative in this small building. And yeah. uh, as I said, Bill Thomas wrote the foreword to my book. I'm so thrilled yeah, about that. Great. Isn't that amazing? And, um, and I've interviewed him just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And uh, obviously, you know, that greenhouse model, the Eden alternative, that's how all of this, uh, his, where his vision started. So but what do you think the possibility is of more facilities? And it doesn't have to be Edenizing the building to that extent, but right. it is part of this whole person-centered care, dignity, respect, quality of life. I mean, what do you think the possibilities are for more buildings to really embrace, embrace those ideas, those concepts? I think there's a lot of potential for it. And 
you know, when we had our buildings, um, they weren't greenhouses because, and, and Bill, Bill, Bill bristles at this, but the economics of a very, very small building are quite challenging. They're really hard. Um, but you can incorporate the values and the mission of the greenhouse or the Eden alternative even into a large building. And that's what we tried to do. We, we tried to have kind of the Eden alternative feel in a very big building with the person-centered care that hopefully you, you get from a greenhouse. And there are other organizations that are doing that right now. But it really goes back to what we talked about in the first segment. The way that the government could jumpstart this would be if it would tie payments to patient outcomes mm-hmm. so that you, everybody doesn't get paid the same amount. Instead, you get paid more if your patients are more satisfied. You get paid more if their health outcomes are better. That's the way that, that you, re- you can really utilize the, the lessons that we've learned in the free market and with the entrepreneurial system. Entrepreneurs will go to where the incentives are. And you know, one of the problems that we had back in the 80s and 90s when care really wasn't very good is that there was no incentive right. for quality outcomes. If there was almost a disincentive, you know, let's just save the money and, right. and pocket it as opposed to spend it on the residents. Well, that's shifted now. You can't really get away with that. But if we would, if we would really tie payments to outcomes, uh, I think that we could jumpstart this. Now, separate from that, there are there are folks that are just in this for the right reasons, and they're going to do the kind of stuff that Bill Thomas talks about, regardless of of reimbursement. And I see that all over the country, in organizations really of you know of all sizes. There are people that are quite committed to person centered care, and they're looking at their quality numbers every single day, and they're hyper focused on it, et cetera. Uh, one of the uh, questions also that I was thinking about as you were talking was that there are so many benefits to non-pharmacological approaches that would mm-hmm. help in care, both for the resident and the environment and the healthcare workers, one of them being uh, Dan Cohn's Music and Memory are now called Right to Music. Right. Are there any incentive or I should say initiatives thinking about I don't want to say requiring that, but but kind of making that a a a, um, a care model. Uh, I almost think mm-hmm. it can be a prescribed a prescribed treatment of sorts. It's not an, a pharmacological treatment, but depriving somebody of that is almost depriving them of an important treatment that can improve their functioning. What do you think yeah. about that? I just thought of it yeah. while you talking, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that. Um, Again, when the government focuses on something, um, they, can, they can move the needle. So the government is clearly focused on the use of antipsychotic medication and the yeah. percentages, have gone, this percentages have gone down. Now, they haven't gone down as much as I think we would all like, but they've still gone down. <clears throat> I, I agree with you <clears throat> that there are some alternatives to, to medications that can work. They are very uh, stat intensive, though. And so it, it all circles back to, we have to have reimbursement rates that make sense. So you can see those kinds of programs in the states like you know, Oregon and Alaska and some of the upper Midwest states that really provide quite good reimbursement. It's really hard to see them in states where the providers are losing money on every Medicaid resident every single day. So it all, it all ties together, but I've, you're right. I've seen some beautiful things in buildings that can be done with you know, music and 
other settings to, to steer people away from the, from the need for antipsychotic medication. Yeah. Okay. So another question I have, and this is a particular area of concern for me, and I've been talking about it for quite a number of years, that an increasing number of long-term care residents are from foreign countries. Many of them speak limited English or don't speak English at all. And many healthcare workers in turn are also from foreign countries with accents, limited English capability. And in, in addition, there are disparities in how people communicate, tone of voice, accents, cultural differences, you know, which contribute to un, um, people being able to understand each other, miscommunications, frustrations. And what I see many times, I'm sure you know it's true and have seen it or heard about it, then you point the finger at the resident and say, they're this, that, and the other thing, when it's mm -hmm. really a response to a situation. So is there anything, any initiatives to address that issue? Because I think that really needs to be discussed. I see it more and more and more. And the, in terms of education, training, I know there is now an F tag. I don't know if people know what that is, but it's a uh, deficiency <coughs> tag for if you don't provide proper education for communication. But I don't, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's being done in that way. I haven't seen it done in that way. What, what are your feelings about that? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you raised the issue, Phyllis, because honestly, I had not thought about this issue before. Oh, cool. Uh, and, and it's probably my cultural background. Um, but, you know, being our buildings were, as you noted, in Kansas and Missouri. And during the time that we were operating, it was certainly an issue with employees. We, we had a number of employees from, from other countries, um, but we did not see it among residents. I would, I'm guessing that this is primarily like a Northeast phenomena that you're seeing and maybe also out on the West Coast. Um, maybe, maybe. But, but now that you've raised it, I will, I'll have my antenna up to kind of, kind of hear about it and see if it's becoming an issue or not. Yeah, uh, I, I see it as a huge issue. I've seen it more and more and more. And um, like I said, it, it, there are cultural differences, even uh, the, the expectations in different cultures about people looking at people when they communicate, right. looking at an older person, and some people think that's disrespectful. So is there some kind of training that can be done? Or like I said, people speak in accents, the person doesn't understand them. They don't understand what was asked of them. Maybe they don't even speak English. I say, listen, if I was in wherever, China, yeah. India, and somebody came in and started telling me things they needed me to do or wanted me to do, and I didn't understand, or I was trying to convey to them how I felt or something I needed. I mean, I could only imagine what my response would have been. And people who know me probably could imagine what my response would have yeah. been. We don't have to go there. <laughs> no, that's an interesting topic, and I'll, I'll be on the lookout for it. Okay, great. So my, my last uh, area that I really wanted to touch on is, what do you think healthcare workers or the general citizenry can do to really insist on these changes or advocate or inspire them? Because as you said, the population is getting older. There are more people that are going to be 65 and older by the year 2035 than 18 and under. People are living longer with you know, more, more comorbidities, more interacting conditions. They become more frail. What, what can people do, do you think? Well, you know, part of my background is I've been a politician before. Uh, right. so I've, I've hit all of the bad guy things. I mean, and now I'm a lobbyist, so I'm, you know, I'm just hitting all the, the bad professions. But um, <laughs> politicians will respond to the public. And they, 
you know, it's almost unfortunate. We don't have too many independent, courageous people out there. They, they are pretty much just responding to what they're hearing from the public. So don't underestimate the importance of contacting at any level, whether it's your state representative, your state senator, your member of Congress, your mayor, your city council person, and just saying, hey, we got a lot of people getting old and they, we need to make sure that they get good care. We need to make sure that the, the reimbursement is adequate. We need to make sure that the regulatory environment makes sense. They need to be a priority. I mean, what we saw in the, in the early days of the pandemic is that the people that were living in these buildings were not a priority. You know, we, could not, we could not get any testing. We couldn't get any personal protective equipment. And I think tens of thousands of people died in buildings that didn't need to. If the right, policy, if the right policy decisions had been made, we still would have had a lot of people die, but it wouldn't have been 150,000 people. Oh, I agree with you 100%. But I, so, I, I, and I, I personally believe that part of that has to do with our attitudes towards older people. Uh, yeah. It has to do, ageism is, is it deeply rooted in that. And, uh, you know, those, it's those people over there, they're at the end of their years, and therefore right. we're not going to apply a lot of funds to care for them. And that's really unfortunate because of who these people have been our entire, we're going to be those people. <laughs> right. Well, I'm pretty darn close right now. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, I, I don't want to end this on a negative though. I mean, I, I would just say that, you know, my wife and I, Stacy and I've been blessed to, to do some traveling around the world and really kind of looking at elder care around the world. And I know that we're not perfect here and there are all sorts of improvements that we need to make, but Oh my God, we are so far ahead of what's happening out there pretty much everywhere else. I mean, there's some decent care in Western Europe, but in most parts of the world, you know, if you're an older person, you don't have cover, you don't have insurance, you don't have Medicare, you don't have any long-term care benefit. If you have a family, you're fortunate and maybe they're going to be taking care of you. But even that's not the idyllic thing that I think people have in their minds. And a lot of people just get discarded and, and die alone. Um, that doesn't happen here. And we've, you know, we've got some improvements that we need to make, but we will make them. And, and despite the horrible pandemic, care, care will continue its gradual line towards getting better. Uh, and hopefully we'll at some point get to the point that we'd all like to be. Oh, that's terrific. And I agree with you. I've spoken to people from other countries in the world and you're hundred percent correct. In many ways, we're light years ahead of them. So that is a good thing, but there's always improvement in the ways to go. Absolutely. So thanks Mark for general generously sharing your time with me today on Senior Straight Talk. I mean, this has just been terrific. I'm so honored that you were willing to share your time with me and the work you do is so valuable and important for, um, for all of us you know, for your organization, but for all, all of us. So I really appreciate it. And I thank you for that. And for thank you. your representation and for your excellence. Uh, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. So please join me on the next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And please remember to like, click and share the episodes. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.